may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Trevor, and I am the lead pastor here at Risen, and it's so good to have you. If I have not got a chance to meet you, please do introduce yourself at some point to me before you leave. And if you're new and you've been here just for the last maybe this is your first week or the last maybe up to the last six weeks you're new, join me at Peace with the Pastor all the way down at the hallway at the end. Uh, any questions you've got about the church or about me or about what we believe or about Christianity, I would love to answer and love to get a chance to meet you. Don't leave this morning. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 4. If you've been with us uh, the last 10 weeks, we have walked verse by verse through Genesis, and this is our last teaching for this year in, uh, in the book of Genesis. We will begin in Genesis chapter 4, picking, off where we, picking up where we left off from last week. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Not too difficult to find. First book of the Bible. Open up. Turn right. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. This morning, if you were with us last week, we read uh, verses 1 all the way through 16. This morning, we will pick up from 17 through 26. Let me just remind you, if, you're, if you missed last week, we left off with Cain, the murderer who killed his brother, being expelled from Eden and heading east, uh, east of Eden. And um, as he goes, he goes with surprisingly God's protection as God marks Cain. Um, and now Cain travels east where he is to be by God, cut off from his family um, to be a, wander, to, uh, a wanderer and a fugitive. And we pick up in this text, Genesis 4, 17 through 26. Let's, uh, I'll read this text and follow along with me. It should be above, but it's good if you have it in front of you too, because um, it won't be up here the whole time. Here's Genesis 4, starting in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, or Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, 
people began to call upon the name of the Lord. When I was growing up as a kid, I remember hearing the story of the country mouse and the city mouse. And I don't know if you remember that story or what the takeaway was. I'm not sure I'm going to get it right this morning, but I'll tell you what I thought it was as a kid. I thought it went something like this, city bad, country good. I don't know if your takeaway was, but I'm sitting in a room full of city mouse right now. Um, no, not all of you. Some of you don't. You're visiting Los Angeles. Welcome from wherever you're coming from. Uh, but most of you have chosen to be here in the city of Los Angeles, in the greater Los Angeles area. You're here because you've, you've chosen to be, not because you're forced to be. I'm sure there are maybe kids in the room who would love to be somewhere else. But the vast majority of you are here because you want to be. And I'm not sure what it is about Los Angeles that you love so much. Uh, maybe it's the great weather. We have phenomenal weather. I mean, it's going to be like 79 degrees today in November in, 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 Cal in Southern California. It's going to be lovely weather. We've got the best weather. Um, it's 72 and sunny most days of the year. It's fantastic. Maybe you love the entertainment industry. Maybe you love making movies or participating in the creation of stories. And we are the entertainment capital of I mean, what the movies that are made and the stories that are produced here go all over the world and shape the world because of what happens in Los Angeles. Maybe you're interested in the diversity. I mean, Los Angeles is home to, you know, the, the second or third highest number of ethnic minority outside of their home place than almost anywhere in the world. I mean, Los Angeles, you get amazing food and amazing cuisine. Maybe you love the idea of the California, the California double. Which is, um, which is the ability in California to surf in the morning and then drive up to the mountains and ski before the evening is over. Uh, you can do that here in California. Maybe you love our great sports teams. Maybe you love the Lakers, or you know, maybe you love the Dodgers, or other sports teams like the Clippers. Um, maybe, you love, maybe you love our university systems, University of Southern California, UCLA. Um, maybe you love the neighborhoods. Yeah, we, I know that we've got a mixed crowd about when it comes to, comes to those two. Um, I don't know what it is you love about there. There's so much to love about Los Angeles. And, uh, and when I think about Los Angeles as a city, and I think about the country mouse and the city mouse, I've always wrestled with this question, what is our relationship as Christians to the city? Is the city good? Is the city bad? Should we love the city? Should we hate the city? How should we relate to the city? And the history of Los Angeles is long. Um, some of you may know, and if you were to talk about the history of LA, you might go all the way back to Los Angeles's kind of founder, which is a sort of Spanish leader. Um, but I want to go trace the history of Los Angeles all the way back to the very first city that's ever mentioned in the Bible. And that is the city that Cain built. Los Angeles and the city of Cain have a lot in common and teach us a lot about the city, about how we are to relate to the city, how we as Christians are to live in the city, how we are to view the city. And we'll get a lot of that out by tracing this story in Genesis 4 of Cain and his relationship to the city that he builds with his son Enoch. So if you have a Bible, um, let me remind you of where we've been Walking through Genesis, Cain murdered his brother. Cain was, was told by God that he was going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. He was going to be kicked east of Eden. He'd be separated from his family. And Cain realizes the punishment is so great. He doesn't know how he's going to bear it. People will try to kill him. And then the Lord says, no, I'll protect you. I will mark you. 
And the story ended last week with Cain traveling east of Eden. And then this morning, we get to follow Cain together as he establishes the very first city. And from that city, I hope we learn something about our city and about ourselves. This is my outline this morning, if you're taking notes. It goes like this. We'll spend the first section of our time talking about the potential of the city. We'll talk about the potential of the city. Then we'll talk about the perversion in the city, the perversion in the city. And we will finish by talking about the promise for the city. So the potential of the city, the perversion in the city, the promise for the city. Let's begin by talking about the potential of the city, and we'll do that just by walking through the story of Cain. Cain, who is expelled and headed east of Eden, it says in verse 17 immediately that Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, for those of you careful Bible readers out there, the first question that's going to come to your mind is, wait, where did Cain get a wife? Well, presumably he got himself a sister wife. Um, and that's just because at this point, there are no other people for Cain to marry and connect with other than descendants of his parents, Adam and Eve. Later on in the text, we will discover that Moses will talk about how sinful incest is. But if you're going to build a humanity based on two people, you're going to have some brothers and sisters getting hitched up early on. So that's what happens right here. Cain grabs one of his sisters and chooses to marry her and chooses to have a child with her. Now, here's what's so interesting about this moment. If you're following the story, the last thing you heard God say to Cain was, Cain, you're going to be cut off from your family. And then in verse 17, you find Cain say, I don't think so. I'll be taking a wife for myself. God had told Cain, you're going to be punished by having, being cut off from your family and being a wanderer. And Cain says, no, I don't think so. I'll do for myself what I want to do. I will have a child. Which makes you wonder, why does God allow Cain to have a child? I mean, surely God has the ability to say, no children for you, Cain. But instead, God allows Cain to have a child. There's a question that we often ask as Christians in the world, which is, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? And there's a, a Christian doctrine that we hold to, which is called common grace. And it just says that we as Christians believe that God in his goodness gives all people immeasurable blessings apart from salvation. We see this throughout the Bible. Even Jesus himself will talk about this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus will talk about common grace this way. Jesus says that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It is not true that if you are a Christian, your farming will be really good. And if you're not Christian, your farming will be really bad. In fact, sometimes, and I know that you know this, you wake up in the morning and go, Lord, I'm really trying to follow you and I feel like I can't get ahead. Head, this person over here hates you, and they seem to be perpetually doing well. Why is that? The Bible's filled with books that address that question. You see it uh, talked about in Job. You see it talked about in Ecclesiastes. But God's common grace means that even people who are in rebellion against God are still blessed by God. Cain is blessed and is given a child. This ungodly man named Cain who killed his brother is giving the blessed blessing of a child because God is good even to those who are wicked. He has this son and he names his son Enoch. And Cain decided with this now small family of his, his wife and his son Enoch, that they are going to build a city. The first city ever mentioned in the Bible is found here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 
18, 17 and 18. Now, a city in the Bible does not have to be a large city. When we think city, we think large area. But in the biblical definition of city is just a sort of smaller settlement community, typically with some sort of hedge of protection. Now, that's important because remember once again that God had said to Cain, you're going to be outcast, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer cut off from your family, and I will protect you with this special mark doesn't take very long for Cain to say, I don't think so. I'll have a family of my own. I'll take a wife. I'll have a child. And I'll protect myself by building a city. Here we have in the Bible the very beginning of urbanization. Here we have in the Bible the founding of the very first non-religious or secular city. And that secular city is filled with potential. First, I want to highlight the bad about the city, the bad things that we find here in the Bible about the city of Cain, which I think you'll also agree you see here in our city of Los Angeles. First, the secular city is self-focused. Cain has, wants to do things his way. So what does he do? He builds himself a city. He had been protected and marked by God, but that protection and that mark was not good enough for him. He wants a city of his own, protection of his own, and a family of his own. He's going to do it his way. This is often the basic instinct of human beings, that we wake up every morning and we each have a choice. Will we live unto the Lord or will we do things our way? And every one of us wakes up in the morning and without fail, in several ways, big and small, chooses to do things their own way. I find it striking that the very first city ever established was established around the self. It's around Cain. It's around him and his family. And we see that kind of self-focus in the city of Los Angeles today. People come to Los Angeles to make a name for themselves. And that's why it's also called the city of broken dreams. In 1923, an advertising company up at the Hollywood Hills put up a giant sign for real estate that they were selling. And the sign in 1923 said, Hollywood Land, with a period at the end. It was lit up and it was designed to entice people to come and purchase real estate in the Hollywood Hills. Just about nine years later, a woman named Peg Entwistle, a British actress, committed suicide at that sign because she had struggled to find success in the city that she had come to. We now celebrate 100 years of that very sign being a hallmark of our city. The sign was built 100 years ago. It's now been changed from Hollywood land with a period to just the Hollywood sign. And that Hollywood sign symbolizes for so many people the hopes and dreams of a city where you can come and make something of yourself. And for those of us who have been around long enough, we've seen countless numbers of people come into the city with that hope and with that dream only to find themselves and their dreams utterly shattered. This is a city of great promises and a, gritty, a city of great heartbreak because people come to L.A. for fame. And Cain wanted a city for himself. He named the city after his son. Now, you probably didn't catch that at first when you were listening to the text, but if you were a Jewish hearer first hearing that Cain established the city, what did he call it? Well, he named it after his son, which means dedicated. He named the city after his own line. He shows pride in his family achievements. The reason that's interesting is because when you read the Bible, you'll discover that often godly people, when they establish cities, will name the city after something that relates to the Lord. 
In Genesis 28, we see the Lord do this when Jacob is afraid and realizes how awesome the place he is in. And he comes to conclude that the place he is in is none other than the house of God and is the gate of heaven. So Jacob in 28, 28 verse 18, gets up in the morning, takes a stone, um, the one that he put under his head. He set it up for a pillar, poured oil on it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Many godly people, when establishing cities throughout history, have wanted to have their city point to the Lord. Cain wants it to point to himself. He names it not something that glorifies God, but after his own family, after his own descendants. The secular city is self-focused. But in addition to that, it's also self-directed. If you see in verse 18, you get a list of the names of generations. And then right after that, seven generations from Adam, we are introduced to the person we will look at the most this morning, who is Lamech. And the first thing we know about Lamech, he has two wives. Now, the last time that we saw marriage explicitly highlighted in the book of Genesis, it was Adam and his one wife, Eve. And the Lord had made Eve for Adam and joined them together in a one flesh union. And they became husband and wife and had offspring. And here, just seven generations from Adam, we see Lamech who has two wives. The first instance of polygamy in the Bible comes through the line of Cain, through the wicked man named Lamech in the city that is set against the Lord. Because in the secular city, the rules around marriage, they get rewritten, don't they? Maybe you've noticed, but in Los Angeles, even in our own city, the way that we think about marriage is no longer primarily informed by God, our creator, who made us male and female and brings us together in a covenantal union for the rest of our lives. But rather, we have, as we've talked about in Genesis already, rewritten what marriage is. Here, Lamech gets greedy, where, where even Adam and Eve, they, they're a one man, one wife in this relationship called marriage. Lamech looks around and says, one wife, who would settle for one wife? I want two wives. And so he takes two wives for himself. If you're hearing about this city, you are aware right off the get-go that not only is it self-focused, it's self-directed. It takes its morality, not from the Lord, but from the self. I desire, I want, I'll say what's right and wrong. We see it here in the city of Cain. It's not just a non-religious city. You begin to see that moral decay is evident in the city. And thirdly, the secular city is sensually oriented. Lamech takes two wives and he names both of them, or, or the two wives are named, I'm sorry. The names of the wife of one is um, Ada and the other is Zillah. The names of the women mean uh, pretty face and sweet voice. These are, in Hebrew, sensual names, indicating that what Lamech values most in women is their outward appearance, how pretty they look and how pretty they sound. This is a city that is filled and cares about women only through the lens of beauty and sex appeal. This is how the city of Cain will choose to view women. It will view them as objects seeking to please men. It will see them as dehuman and only to be viewed upon. We are a far way from the way that Adam sees Eve. Now Lamech sees his wives and only their beauty. This is often how our own city views women, to be seen as objects on display. In the city of Los Angeles, we are just a stone's throw away from the adult entertainment capital of our country, 
And if you're a young woman and you've moved into this city with a desire to be famous and you discover that that's harder than you think it is, if you grab an LA Weekly and you flip through the pages of that, you will be enticed and offered opportunities to reduce yourself to merely become a product sold for the pleasures of men. The city of Cain dehumanizes and treats women as though they are merely objects. The city of Los Angeles does the same. This city is self-focused, self-directed, and overly sensual, just like our city. We read the city of Cain, and we look around in L.A., and we go, yeah, I know what that's like. This is what it looks like for us. And some of you are like, yes, this is why I hate the city. This is why I can't wait to get lost out of Los Angeles. That and the fact that I can't afford to live here, those are the two reasons I can't wait to get out of this place. But if you are tempted to merely be against the city for all of its flaws, I want you to also see that in the very first city in Genesis, we see some of its beauty. Look here. The secular city has major benefits. We notice this first when we see Lamech and his impressive sons. We're getting to that weird time in the, in, the, in the year when families start sending out their Christmas pictures and Christmas cards with, uh, with all their family on it, and they give updates on families, right? Um, and it's lovely. I get a bunch of those. We love them. We put them on the fridge. They're fantastic. And then we throw them away in January like the rest of you do. Um, but they're wonderful. And, uh, but sometimes, can we be honest about this? Sometimes they get a little braggy. Am I right? Sometimes you get, you get one in the mail, and it's like, hey, this is our son, so-and-so, and let us tell you why he's better than your son. Um, hey, this is our daughter, so-and-so, and let's point out what she accomplished. What did you accomplish? Um, and you kind of read these, and you're like, oh, what have we done? Oh, we haven't done anything this year compared to these great fans. A little boastful. Well, I want you to see that in the same way that we can get those cards and see families as boasting, Lamech and this family is happy to boast in their creation, and honestly, for good reason. Look at what's happened in this. First of all, he's got three boys. Their names are J-Ball, Jew-Ball, and Two-Ball. Now, that's nothing to brag about. I think we can all agree that no matter what you've named your kids, you didn't make that mistake. But imagine these boys, and it's important to see them. First, you've got J-Ball. What is he? He invented lives, not livestock, but shepherding livestock with a moving tented system over multiple kinds of animals. Sure, we saw shepherding before, Abel shepherd in, in Genesis, but here you get, here you get J-Ball. He's like the father of getting all these animals together and shepherding and, and, and moving tents and herding them. I mean, he's taken, he's the creator of sort of business and agriculture in a way we've never seen before. This is really kind of the first business we see in the Bible. If J-Ball was sitting as a, as, a, as, a, as a dean of the college in the city of Cain, I mean, he would be over the business sector. But then you get Jubal. What did he do? Well, his older brother Jubal essentially created business. What did Jubal make? Oh, nothing. Just musical instruments. Just invented music. That's what he makes. That's what it says, that Jubal invents musical instruments. So, so there's a sense of music out there, but then, but then this one son of, of Lamech named Jubal like, puts these things together, and now for the first time, the city is able to create art and music in a way that it had never heard before. And then you get Tubal, Cain, and, 
And what does he make? He, he is the creator of bronze and iron tools. We get technology here. As he, he sort of forges together uh, different kinds of tools that are going to be needed. I mean, just in this family line. I don't know what your Christmas cards are going to say, but Lamech could have said, my sons invented business, invented technology, invented arts and culture. It's a pretty big, it's a pretty great thing. It's an impressive city. Imagine the kinds of parties that could be thrown in the city of Cain. Imagine all the different kinds of meats, like one of those Brazilian steakhouses where they got all the kinds of meat. I mean, that's happening. And not just that, great music is playing. And the music is playing, and people are dancing along. And, and Lamech's like, my son's invented music. And then they've got amazing flatware. And they're like, who made this fork? This is an incredible fork. Like, my son invented flatware. I mean, it's incredible. The origins of business, art, science, and technology. This civilization, this city, apart from God, did some wonderful things. I want to remind you, we, we are all as human beings made in the image of God. And so even when we are rebelling against God, we can still create some wonderful things. Sometimes Christians get a little too obsessed with, is it Christian? Right? Right? That movie that came out, yeah, but who directed it? Who wrote it? Is it Christian? I don't want to see if it's not Christian. That music, is it Christian? I don't want to hear if it's not Christian. We can get so obsessed and hyper-focused over the Christian that we can forget that even a culture that stands against God has the capacity of making some progress. Though it is all using the gifts of God, certainly. I just want you to understand that the city isn't all and only bad. Or all and only good. It's filled with potential. The city has major issues and major blessings. But in the city is hiding a looming problem. It has no concern for God. It has business. It has arts. It has technology and science. But it has no theology. It's self-focused, self-directed, sensual, and empty. Worldly things is all there is, and it's all that they will work for. Lamech could, imagine Lamech, he could talk to his boys about business. He could talk to his sons about arts and science, but he couldn't talk to them about God. He couldn't teach them how to be right with God. He could teach them how to throw a party, but he couldn't teach them about the Lord. And one of the problems we have is if the city is all that we have, then we're likely to think that the city is what can save us. Back in the day, I don't know if you remember, the Star Trek show, which was so popular, and they've had multiple iterations. The central premise of that Star Trek show was that humanity had sort of achieved all peace and unity and now would export all peace and unity through the galaxy. And that show brought a lot of hope to people because there was a time when many people thought, man, the more technology, the more culture, the more progress we make, the better everything's going to be. I'm not so sure we still believe that. I think we know that culture can't save us because our city hides a deeper problem, a deeper perversion, a distortion, if you will. That brings me to my second point, the perversion in the city. The perversion in the city of Los Angeles and the perversion in the city of Cain lies in the hearts of those who live in the city. Look at verse 23 and 24 as we get to highlight Lamech. Lamech sings a song. The last time we really heard a song in Genesis is when Adam was sort of singing over his wife. And now we have Lamech singing over his two wives. 
And what does he do? He sings a song. It's kind of a poem. You'll, if you have it in your Bible in front of you, you'll see that it's sort of written in the poetic, poetic form. This song is kind of like the one Adam sings to Eve, but it's very different. This song will not bring any glory or any thanksgiving to God. Instead, it will be a pure expression of his own ego. Look what Lamech says to his wives as he sings. Imagine Lamech at this party. Everyone's eating meat. People are, there's music going on. The flatware is stellar. And here's Lamech, stands up and says to his wives, let me sing you a song. And what is the song? The song is, listen to my song. It's, it's I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Lamech sings in a song that if anyone bothers him, even touches him, he's happy to kill him, them. Lamech has gone to his youngest son, Tubal Cain, the forager from iron, and said, hey, Tubal Cain, you make lots of different things. Would you make me a sword? I'll be using that technology for violence. He went to his son, created a deadly weapon, and now what is he doing? He's celebrating his sin. He's boasting in his wickedness. Now, if you've been following Genesis, let me just catch you up on this. You gotta see this, it's so important. When Adam sinned in the garden... Adam hid from God, told the truth about it, but blamed Eve. But there was moral weight and moral guilt to Adam. By the time you get to Cain, what does Cain do? He lies completely, lies completely. And then finally, when realizes the punishment, sort of confesses. But he is further removed from Adam. By the time you get to Lamech, what does Lamech do? He's celebrating his sin. From the beginning of the garden, we saw sin start off small, and then we get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and now we are rejoicing in our sin. Now Lamech is celebrating his abuse of the grace of God. Notice what he says here. He doesn't ask God for it. He demands that in the same way that Cain, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, was, um, was marked by God uh, uh, for seven years, so too... Um, he would be marked for 77 years. Like he, he, Lamech has this sense that I will be, I get even more grace than my great, 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 great grandfather Cain did. It is pure ego, pure abuse of the grace of God. Cain's line has advanced in culture, but it has also institutionalized violence. Cain was a murderer, Lamech even more so. And Lamech's descendants will now see violence as their duty. Why? Because their hearts are twisted and perverted in the same way that ours are. Our hearts are also twisted and perverted. Sometimes we find ourselves glorying in God's grace in such a way as to think that it excuses our sin. God will forgive me, therefore I'll live however I want. You often hear people say that. When you tell them about the Lord and tell them about Jesus and they say, so you're telling me I can sin as much as I want and then accept Jesus and become a Christian. And you say, yes, that's, that's how it works. And their response is, that sounds like a great deal. Or some Christians will become Christian and then say, so you're telling me now I can sin how much I want and then God will always forgive me. And you're saying, yes, God will always forgive you, but, but to, to know the Lord and then to, to glorify in sin, in perpetuity is an abuse of God's grace and a misunderstanding of it at its core. The city is filled with potential, but 
When human beings take what the Lord has given, all good gifts, we in our own perversion have a tendency to twist them and to make them evil and to corrupt them. We do this in our families. We do this in our churches. We do this in our city. In the late 1800s, a couple of young bicycle mechanics, two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, decided that they were going to build the world's first flying machine. And so they started reading about how to do this, and they began their project in 1899. It took them just four years to get this thing off the ground. And people couldn't believe it. In 1903, when they um, took their first flight at Kitty Hawk, I mean, people had heard the news about it, but you just couldn't really imagine the courage that it would take for these two guys to say, we're going to build something, we're going to get on it, it's going to go above the ground, it's going to fly. I mean, they had invented flight. By 1909, people had marveled in America over what they had done. Even so much as to have the Wright brothers' uh, aircraft fly over and around um, the Statue of Liberty. It was incredible. A technological advancement like no other. The invention of flying, which you probably take for granted, right? We complain in airplanes all the time. We get up in airplanes and we're like upset that the Wi-Fi is not working and we forget that we're flying. Um, anyway, but we, so, we're, so it's amazing. In 1909, people in America are marveling at the Wright brothers. Just six years later, sorry, not six years later, sorry. In 1909, that same year in New York, the U.S. military purchased from the Wright brothers these flying machines to be used for military purposes. Orville Wright, his brother dies earlier, but Orville lives long enough to see World War II. And imagine, imagine that life for a second. You and your brother in the middle of Ohio had this idea in 1899 to fly. And by the time of your death, you're watching the invention that you made bomb the world, killing millions. Orville was asked about this, and before he died, Orville said, we dared to hope we had invented something that would bring lasting peace to the earth. That's what they thought they were building. Those brothers thought they were building something that was going to make the earth a more peaceful place. But we were wrong, Orville said. I don't have any regrets about my part in the invention of the airplane, though no one could deplore more than I do the destruction it has caused. It's not what it is. It's what we do with it. And our problem is that we can't change our hearts at the deepest level. We can't rid our hearts from the twisting. So Los Angeles can make and build and produce, but everything we design is corruptible, and we will find a way to corrupt it. Remember when the iPhone was invented? People are like, this is amazing. Now everyone's like, we all love and hate this thing. The smartphone is destroying us, and we're addicted to it. More culture does not mean more hope. So when you end this text with Lamech boasting, you're wondering, is there any hope? And lastly, we'll finish with the promise for the city. You get to verse 25 in Genesis chapter 4, and it speaks of hope. It says that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Adam and Eve have another son. 
Now, up until this point, if you're reading Genesis, I know some of you know this, but you forget how beautiful this is. You had Adam and Eve, and then what you know about is you've got, you've got Cain and Abel, and what happens? Cain kills Abel. So now you've just got Cain, and you're wondering, how is God going to redeem and save and heal and fix? How's he going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 through Cain? As you see Cain's unfolding wickedness, what happens? There's another baby, and his name is Seth. And he is the one through whom the Messiah would come. And I love this because Seth has a son and called his name Enosh. And you might be thinking to yourself as you're reading the text, ooh, Cain's descendants, art, uh, business, technology, what will the sons of Seth make? And did you notice this in verse 26, after Enosh, it says, at that time, people began to do what? Call upon the name of the Lord. There is hope in this wickedness. There is hope in this city because Seth was born and Seth had a son and Seth's people, they don't do all that stuff necessarily that the world does, but what do they do? They call upon the name of the Lord. Cain built a city with business, art, and science. Seth built a community of worship. Now, in the Bible at this point, we've seen worship personally, but this is the first time we see it corporately. The people come together to say, God is our hope in this city. That's who they were, and that's who we are. We see Los Angeles, and we see good things. And I know you'll leave, and you'll probably talk today about all the things you love about L.A., and I get that. But we also see wicked things, and we see the potential of it. We see the problems of it. We see all of that. But we know here in this room that Los Angeles, that cultural progress, that technology, that business, that riches, that fame, that entertainment, that none of that can fix us, and none of that will save us. But there's one who can, and he is the one whom we gather together on Sunday morning to call upon. Amen? God can save us. We're made for him. Later on, Jesus will say to the church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. To be a Christian is to be a member of a city in the city. I want you to get that. To be a Christian is to be a member of a city, God's city, in a city, Los Angeles. We are a city in a city. And our job, as we love and serve and use our gifts and our talents and use our resources, we pull together, we are to enact the kind of life that would call people who have only tasted the brokenness of our city to look upon the city in this room and go, that room looks a little bit of like what I think heaven's going to look like someday. That's our job. I, here to me, here's the point I'm making. Here's why I'm emphasizing this. Because we can obsess sometimes about the city of LA and we're here for the city, yes and amen. Yes, we wanna see the city healed. Yes, we wanna see it transformed. Yes, it's a part of our vision. Yes, it's a part of our mission. But too often we overlook that our first priority is to be the people of God, to show the people of God what the city of God looks like by the way we live in community with one another. And what makes us significant? We call upon the name of the Lord. 
That's what makes us significant. Romans 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Seth's line knows the hope of the world, and I hope that you know it too. We are all, many of us in this room, most of us are not from here. I know that. But we are here. And my hope is that you would know that what you're looking for outside of this space will not satisfy or fulfill you. And that the distance you feel from God and the wickedness you sense in yourself, that it has a cure and his name is Jesus. That God out of love for you sees you better than you see yourself, sees your wickedness more than you see it. And what he says is, I love you so much, I refuse to give up on you. I'm going to send my son Jesus. He is going to live the perfect life, a life you couldn't live. He's going to die on your behalf. He's going to be raised on the third day. And he's going to offer the forgiveness and grace and life with God forever to anybody who said, Lord, this city can't do it. I need you to do it and I want it from you. So I'm going to call upon your name to be saved. This is the hope of the world. Amid Cain's line, Seth's line proclaims the name of the Lord. I want to close by just pointing out that I wonder if Seth and his family felt insignificant. I wonder if Seth and his community are getting together, they're calling upon the name of the Lord, and they're looking out and they're going, man, but they, look what they did. Look what they built. Look what they have. What do we have? And God wants you to know, if, you, if all you have is me, you have more than they do. Because they had God and they had worship and they had hope. My prayer for us as a church is that we would live like Seth in the land of Cain. And that we would fulfill what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. If you're working in art and business and technology and culture, use it all for the glory of God. Because God is your highest good. And only he can give you the hope and peace that you most desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for the city of Los Angeles. Lord, we love this city, and we know that you love the people in this city. And God, we want to be your city, your community here in our church, and we want to live in such a way as to be compelling to those who are looking for community and looking for hope and meaning and peace and purpose, and, and they're looking for you, really, and love and welcome they're looking for that. Lord, I pray that we might be your people, faithfully extending that to those outside of this space. I pray that when we exit this space and we hit Monday morning and we head into our jobs, that we, would, we may see the perversion in our own hearts or in our own workplaces or in our own lives. But I pray that we would take the things that you have made and we would use them for your good. Lord, I pray that we as Christians in this room, whatever 
vocations we find ourselves in would be, would be working in the city for you and for your kingdom and for your glory. That our desire might be that many more would call upon your name, seeing you as their highest good, their greatest good, and their only hope. And I pray for those who are here this morning who feel distant from you, who have been running from you, who have been working for their own self, who have been maybe over-sensual, maybe they've been self-directed, maybe they've been self-focused, um, as the city likes to, it makes it easy for us to do. Lord, I pray that you would call them to repentance and trust in you this morning, that they would know the goodness of your forgiveness and your love, that you would heal them, restore them, renew them, and bring them into your family. Give them new gifts and new purpose for a new life with you. Help us to see this city, to see its potential. Help us to see the perversion and help us to remember the promise that you are God and you are for us and you are for this city. Help us to join you in the work that you're already doing. But help us to live it out here first as a church. We cannot do it apart from you. It's in your name we pray.